It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. If you're a new listener, welcome to the Barbell Medicine Podcast series. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. Happy to have you. This is episode 189, part two of Dr. Baraki and I answering questions from the internet. We'll link uh, part one in the description below. That was the last podcast. You can check that out if you haven't listened yet. Two quick announcements before we hop in. Announcement one. All of our apparel is 15% off for today only. So use code POD15 at checkout on our website in the description below, and you can take 15% off your entire order for apparel only. This will end 7 a.m. Thursday, August 25th. That's Pacific Standard Time. So again, use code POD15, take 15% off your order if you want to rep the latest barbell medicine swag in the gym. Um, Also, as always, our app is available to download for free in the Apple App Store. You can log all your progress, track changes, track your PRs, et cetera, et cetera. You get template previews. You can figure out which template is correct for you based on the new algorithm we baked into the template. So check that out. Um, Just search Barbell Medicine within the Apple App Store. All right, announcements are over. Let's hop in to this week's podcast. On to the nutrition section. Austin, for muscle hypertrophy purposes, should daily protein intake go up as your body weight goes up? Ooh, what do you think? Uh, to a point, I think so. Uh, and that's why most of our recommendations tend to be given in grams of protein per kilogram of of body weight. I think that after a certain point though, it is, um, a generally safe assumption that a lot of the additional weight that an individual is carrying beyond a certain point tends to be mostly adipose, mostly body fat. And, and so, you know, I think that in general, we're comfortable having people, uh, aim for the 1.6 grams per kilo of body weight as a very rough rule of thumb. There are certain situations where that may get shifted around a bit, um, either a little lower, or a little higher, but definitely like once I hear people telling me that like, I'm really struggling to get like 250 grams of protein in per day or something like that, I'm like, it's probably unlikely that you really need to be getting that that much um, it, specifically for, for this reason, unless again, very, very, very unique situations of like absurdly jacked, absurdly lean dieting for a bodybuilding show or something like that, which is not the kind of people who are talking to me for advice. Yeah. I don't know that there's a huge difference between like 1.6 and 1.55 or 1.5 grams per kilo per day. So like, yeah, as your body weight creeps up, you know, and you're like, oh, my current protein intake of 180 grams a day is now 1.55. I must adjust by five grams. Like I, it just, I don't think that matters that much. And, and I agree that, you know, once you start getting into the higher body weights, it may be better to use uh, a lean body weight, um, particularly for individuals who are carrying uh, significant amounts of excess uh, adipose tissue. Um, So, you know, if your protein guideline or recommendation based on the 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day is north of 200, I think you may benefit um, from considering a lower protein intake based on lean body weight, but that's only if you don't want to eat that much protein. You know, if you want to eat that much protein, like do it. Yeah. The only other weird con- like situation I can think of is like somebody is eating a ton of calories per day because they need that much to like support all of their activity. These are mostly like ultra endurance athletes or whatever. And they're like, I'm eating 5,000 calories a day, but like legit. So not like when Michael Phelps said he was eating 10,000, but it was really, you know, five or 6,000. But people eating that much, they're getting a lot of trace proteins from like carbohydrate and fat sources. And so their actual like intake of essential amino acids is lower than you would expect just because they're getting all this stuff from carbohydrates and fats. And so at that point you may think like, eh, maybe I'll bump the protein intake up a little bit. Um, but that again, very rare, rarely does this happen. So yeah, I think as your body weight goes up, 
you may think about ratcheting your protein up, um, particularly if adipose tissue uh, is not really increasing a bunch. Um, but yeah, 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day is a good good place to start. If you're carrying maybe more than 20% body fat, uh, you could think about just using lean body weight and I think you'll be fine. Cool. All right, Baraki, you know, you, you write these articles about blood pressure, cholesterol, and you, and you, you know, you're taking shots at saturated fat and, and dietary sodium intake. Uh, but like, can I just go over on saturated fat and sodium guidelines on one day if my total week, the average intake is within range? You know, what's up with that? Yes. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that we both, we both certainly are going to have days where, you know, if we have, uh, you know, we go to a nice steakhouse or we go out to a nice, uh, uh, restaurant for dinner or something, it's, it's, it's likely that we may be exceeding in, in certain areas, but yes, definitely if it has not been made sufficiently clear in our prior conversations that, uh, overall dietary patterns are what we care about. Perfection day to day, perfection, meal to meal, perfection in every bite is not, uh, is not the goal. Yeah. Yeah. The only time I could see where this may be a problem is if somebody has like maybe some binge eating type behaviors uh, or whatever, and they're like really blowing it out on, you know, one or two days a week. And then the other days it's like restrictive. And so it's like that dietary pattern is probably not one that we'd sign off on. But instead of just saying, hey, you know what, you should just change your dietary pattern, that probably requires some additional professional sort of input um, with respect to beliefs and ideas about, uh, you know, what a health promoting dietary pattern is and like how to strategize given your current sort of setup. But I think, yeah, if on one day your saturated fat is a little higher than it should be and then, but the whole, uh, over the whole week it shakes out fine. I'm not really concerned. It matters more what you do in, you know, time after time after time than what you do in isolation. So, uh, similarly, what about protein intake? Is it more important to meet protein intake requirements daily or weekly? And, and this one, I'm going to let you know, that I've got some nuance here, but I want, I'm going to let you start, but I have some nuance here. <laughs> uh, if I don't know that I have a super strong opinion on this. I think, again, like most things over the very long term tend to come out in the wash. I would feel my preference, uh, as you say, if I had my druthers, I think it would be to hit the protein intake uh, goals more regularly on a daily basis and, and even having that potentially distributed across the day a little bit more evenly. Just there is, if I recall, some evidence on like, you know, protein distribution throughout the day. Again, this is not like a massive earth shattering kind of difference, but people who have like absolutely zero protein breakfasts and like trivial protein lunch and then having like a big slug of it at dinner compared to more even distribution there's some difference in outcomes there. And so I'm, I'd be more inclined to want to achieve that on a day-to-day basis. But again, if it's like under no circumstances, am I going to do this? I'm going to, I'm going to distribute it this like suboptimal way, but I'm still hitting my total weekly goals and I'm going to do this for decades. I'm like, all right, cool. I'm, I'm still okay with that. <laughs> yeah. It's probably fine. My one like additional nuance here is if we're talking about like people who do alternate day fasting or some sort of approach like that where they're not eating on particular days or not eating any protein on particular days and then like double down on protein the next day so the weekly average shakes out i can tell you that based on the current evidence that is going to produce reduced in, uh, improvements in muscle mass and strength it doesn't mean that you will have reduced the improvements in strength and muscle mass you may be an outlier you may be a freak i mean if you listen to the barbell medicine podcast chances are good but uh i think that if you were trying to discern like whether or not alternate day fasting or some sort of similar approach was better or worse for like making gains i will tell you that it seems to be a little worse um, other than that i don't care if you're like 
less, you know, 30 grams less on one day, 30 grams higher on another day. I just think having a protein target may be useful for developing that health and performance promoting dietary pattern that we're searching for. So, all right. Thoughts on a particular physician's carnivore diet theory that plants are bad for humans. Absolutely laughable uh, in general. Dude, Although, but what, but what yeah. about the lectins and the glycoalkaloids <laughs> and all these things, Baraki? There, there are certainly some plants that will kill you. I'll, I'll give you that. But uh, the claims around vegetables uh, being bad for you, being harmful, um, is it's it's just a joke. Uh, and we have talked many, many, many times before, and it is always worth going over again, that there's a big difference between uh, finding potential mechanisms for things. So it's like plants have this chemical. This chemical is thought to have this negative effect in the body. Therefore, this plant is bad for the body. That's a theory that would require, you know, asking a particular question in a, you know, a well-designed kind of uh, scientific context. But it is uh, different than looking at actual outcomes for humans who consume this particular food um, in varying amounts and seeing the spectrum of health outcomes that emerge. So we care much, much, much more about what are the actual outcomes that people get when they eat these foods as part of their overall dietary pattern um, compared with people who don't. And uh, when we look at things, when we focus on outcomes, it leads us to very different conclusions compared to when people look at potential mechanisms, you can find a potential mechanism by which almost everything on earth is, is bad for you. And you could create an entire dietary cult around it. Um, we tend to focus most on what is the most consistent evidence that we have with respect to human outcomes, uh, uh, from, from a dietary standpoint. And that's where all of our dietary recommendations come from. Yep. I have nothing to add to that other than I was really hoping you went on a bigger rant and you just your voice escalated you yelled maybe even cursed uh, we'll save it for next time yeah see that's not how minds change bro yeah that's <laughs> if they change at all good point right. all right moving on to the medicine section of the barbell medicine podcast today here with dr austin baraki all right this thing hit the presses and got it went viral it went viral there was a new study doubting the uh serotonin depression link does this really cast doubt on selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors use though. And so I, I think, you know, it's like this question was asked in such a way where they already like know the answer. But this study came out basically saying, yeah, I mean, we looked, we, we looked at all this data showing, you know, people on selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which presumably would increase serotonin levels in the brain. And it didn't. <laughs> so <laughs> what do we, what do we do with that, Baraki? Yeah, um, I will say that the details of the the original study that flew all over the place is not something that I read, and and the reason why ties into my answer to the last question. It was focused on a particular mechanism with respect to how serotonin relates, like brain serotonin levels, as far as I recall, relate to uh, depression risk and things like that. And so then that was spun by folks um, to question whether uh, these medications. Um, are worth taking or have any effect at all on this condition. And part of that may be due to their name, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. They are very selective for their action as it relates to brain serotonin and brain, brain chemistry. Um, but again, this is a situation where we need to look separately between, on one hand, we have this like mechanism, right? It is this pathway and we can question, is all depression just due to serotonin? And it's like, no, and no, 
reasonable physician or healthcare professional or mental health clinician should claim that, or I think honestly would claim that like all depression is just because you don't have enough serotonin. That's silly. Um, so nobody would say that, nor has anybody been claiming that, but it seems like after this paper came out, people started using this to like waving, waving this paper around saying, see, you guys were all wrong. It's not all about serotonin. It's like, yeah, well, you know, we weren't really saying that. What we should care about more than the mechanisms is the actual outcomes. What happens when patients take these medications? Now, if we look at uh, actual, you know, the placebo controlled randomized trials of these medications, is it fair to say that these medicines do not have a very large effect on their own, uh, particularly a very large effect beyond what a placebo? Yes, that is true. I would I would not dispute that these medicines do not seem to have a very large effect beyond placebo. However, the caveat or the the what I would add to this is that depression is not one condition. It's extremely heterogeneous, meaning it's very variable between people. There's all sorts of different, you know, personal, individual, life, psychosocial, probably genetic, maybe epigenetic, uh, all sorts of variables that all, you know, result in this confluence that leads to this condition. And so the idea that I can just like tweak this one chemical in your brain and and, and make you um, happy all the time or something like that is silly and, and unrealistic. But I also think it's not fair to say that no one benefits from these medicines at all, or that no one benefits from these medicines beyond a placebo effect. I think that it is just so heterogeneous that that ends up causing a lot of messiness in in, in the data that we end up having. So my bottom line takeaway, or my bottom line for this discussion topic, I guess, is that I don't particularly care or find interesting that paper because nobody was claiming that depression is 100% due to serotonin. I care way less about mechanisms as a clinician. If I were a research scientist who my, and my PhD interest was in like, you know, biochemical mechanisms of depression, then sure, I would be geeking out on this. But as a clinician who sees real people and, and, and tries to uh, help them when they're sitting in front of me with this sort of thing, I care way more about outcomes. And as far as outcome data go, yes, we have evidence these medicines do add on average, on average, some benefit beyond placebo. There's a substantial placebo, you know, type effect from these things. There's a substantial natural history and regression to the mean, meaning that on average, you know, a lot of people are going to get better on their own anyway. Um, And so all of that leads to complex decision-making when we're working with patients. Like, is it worth using these medicines in people with relatively mild depression? That's an open question. I typically tend to not do that as a default, but on a case-by-case basis, I'll have that conversation with people. And if they want to try something, then we kind of come to a shared plan. So I care way more about the actual outcomes for people and way less about the mechanisms. Yeah. I mean, I think when you read the papers, so just for folks who are trying to you know, find this, the paper is called The Serotonin Theory of Depression, A Systematic Umbrella Review of the Evidence. It was published in Molecular Psychiatry uh, this year uh, in July. Uh, and Moncrief, Joanna Moncrief was the uh, lead author on that. Their thought, I think, for doing this was was basically to undermine that reductionist theory, like, oh, it's just like a chemical imbalance. And, you know, their opening paragraph cites some interesting sort of data where, look, you know, previously we thought it might have been due or physicians thought it might have been due to this chemical imbalance. There's still websites and medical, uh, you know, inserts. So the, these are the little, you know, folded up pieces of paper that come within medications maybe still endorse this chemical imbalance theory and then even some surveys on physicians some of them may still you know endorse this chemical imbalance theory and you know here's data going against it it doesn't mean that the medicines themselves are not useful but rather it means that just this reductionist idea of like serotonin low that's depression raise serotonin depression fixed 
And, and I think I think in that light, you know, this article is net positive. You know, if, if you were just restricting it to like maybe that changing the idea in the public and then also in some practitioners who maybe have some outdated ideas. But I think if you look on the whole of it, maybe net negative because a lot of people now are are maybe maybe they stop their medications <laughs> without talking to their physician maybe that some of the stigma sur- surrounding mental health conditions has has increased you know because oh well see it's not biological there's no biological input here and so it's just got to be you choosing to be sad yeah uh, you know i don't have it, data on that i just feel like if if this were not picked up by mainstream media and you know influential figures who maybe didn't accompany the article with the report where they did their due diligence <laughs> may may have had some unwanted outcomes here. Yeah. So. It's it, it's also just really easy for people to say those kind of things when they have no responsibility towards actual people as patients. <laughs> so that's true. That's true. All right. Next question. Is being metabolically inflexible a thing and can it be improved? And so first thing I did as I went on Supple Leopard and I was like, where's the metabolic section? Like how do I <laughs> How do I stretch my way to being metabolically flexible? Um, the way I think about this is from, you know, the definition of metabolically inflexible has uh, much to do with the ability or in this case inability or reduced ability to use a particular energy substrate. In most cases is carbohydrates. Um, so individuals with metabolic syndrome, that's like a precursor to um, type 2 diabetes. People with type 2 diabetes and people with certain types of cancer cannot liberate energy uh, as well from uh, dietary carbohydrates. And so that indiv- those individuals are less metabolically flexible. They can't shift between using fat either from the diet or from fat stores uh, to using carbohydrates in the diet, uh, for example, or glycogen that's been stored in the liver or the muscles. And so, yeah, this is a thing. And as far as how it can be improved, well, it depends on the underlying condition. If someone has metabolic syndrome, they're insulin resistant, meaning that they need uh, more insulin to do the job uh, that it used to do because of excess fat accumulation, a defect in the insulin receptor, uh, things of that nature, and they can't use carbohydrates, well, uh, one way to improve this is weight loss. And interestingly, it doesn't have to be on a low-carbohydrate diet. There may be some benefit of being on a lower carbohydrate diet with respect to use of uh, medications, but that's kind of tenuous at this point. And things like exercise tend to improve people's ability to use carbohydrates. Now, if you have an underlying cancer, for example, that's causing this, or some sort of inborn error of metabolism, well, this this that those sort of changes aren't really going to work. Um, but Austin, have you ever used, and I don't mean to laugh, but have you ever used the term metabolically inflexible when talking to somebody about their diabetes, for example? Never. No. Never. It's too complicated and ill-defined and nebulous, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think when people are using this, they're, they're trying almost to obfuscate or hide, you know, like well, like better known terms and, and better understood terms like insulin resistance, for example, metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes. And that, that's principally, I think, what they're trying to hint at. But why not just use that term? You use this metabolic inflexibility thing and you're like... You're, you're metabolically inflexible and you got to eat a low carbohydrate diet. And it's like, where are you getting that from? Yeah. I don't know, man. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I see it. I've seen it a lot in the fitness space where people are like, oh, if you eat these certain foods and you like bloat afterwards, for example, or you're not losing weight, well, it's probably because of type of foods because you're metabolically inflexible. And I'm like, mm, I need you to define what metabolic inflexibility is because as we understand it, this has to do with like use of different energy substrates um, in particular situations. If you're just talking about people eating foods they don't normally eat and getting like bloated afterwards, uh, that is a thing that we, has been well described with respect to gut micro, microbiome, um, certain overeating tendencies or whatever. And if you talk about a particular person not losing weight on a specific diet that has more to do with energy balance than like this metabolic inflexibility thing, which is why when you compare studies that are low or even very low in dietary carbohydrate intake to similar energy level diets that are that have moderate or even high levels of carbohydrates, there's no real difference in weight loss. The point is like, how can you sustain a particular energy balance? Um, and so I don't know that I would focus on metabolically or metabolic flexibility. Like you have one day that's high carb and one day that's low carb. Like, I don't think you need to like train that. But if you do have metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, type two diabetes, uh, then yeah, I think you can benefit from a dietary pattern change, exercise and potentially other lifestyle interventions and medications. Like, I think we think we handled that one. All right. Last question before we get into potpourri, which again, I just have to remind you guys is my favorite section because this is very random and I like it. But still on medicine here, Baraki, what has a stronger effect on health outcomes, conditioning or strength work? Tough question. Um, I don't know that I have a super strong and super clear, confident answer on this. I, I think that um, if what, what we know is that the biggest kind of like bang for your buck that you're going to get from either of these kind of things is going from like no activity to some amount of activity. And, and, and I think that's reflected in like the amount of adaptation that you have in that particular thing. So if, if we could imagine like each person has two like curves, one curve for their like level of conditioning adaptation, um, you know, starting out from like none increasing pretty rapidly and then plateauing if they were to become super, super, super conditioned. And then another curve for their strength level of adaptation, it could be from like, you know, very weak, frail, no strength, increasing rapidly, uh, and then getting plateauing when you're very, very, very well, well trained and super, super strong. And so I think that, you know, the, you can, that reflects the impact that, uh, kind of like each incremental or like marginal, uh, additional unit of adaptation that you get is going to give you. So, so what I'm, the point that I'm making here is like, which has a stronger effect on health outcomes is going to be pretty individual based on where each person is at in each of those tasks. So if somebody is like woefully untrained or undertrained from a conditioning standpoint, but they're very, very strong, then I think that they have a potential, a potentially a lot of health to gain by becoming more conditioned. If somebody's very, very well conditioned, but has no strength somehow, um, then uh, <laughs> that'd be tough to do. But but I think that if there's a wild discrepancy in that direction, again, like the biggest bang for the, their buck that they could get is by getting a bit stronger versus adding some additional conditioning adaptation. And so that's kind of how I would view it on, a, on an individual level, rather than trying to make this, again, like an unnecessarily dichotomized or like unnecessary binary choice of like, should I get stronger? Should I get conditioned? It's like, there's a reason why it's called strength and conditioning, why we recommend meeting the physical activity guidelines that have uh, elements of both in them and doing both of them. If your goal is ultimately health, you don't, you, you should not specialize in one or the other. We would like for you to achieve a you know a good amount of adaptation on both. And that's where we have the best evidence for health outcomes, both from a 
musculoskeletal standpoint, you know, in particular, including bone mineral density, physical independence, all that good stuff that you get from being able to produce a bunch of force um, in your environment. And then the conditioning, cardiorespiratory fitness, cardiometabolic kind of stuff uh, relating to heart function, lung function, vascular function, all those things are also handy as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that when people ask this sort of question, what they're envisioning is like a very well thought out strength training program compared to like, oh yeah, just go run for like 20 or 30 minutes every day or walk or do the elliptical or whatever. And it's like, I think if you compared like a, a, a similarly well thought out program, one conditioning focused and one strength focused, you're going to get a significant overlap and adaptations, not, not complete overlap. Obviously the conditioning work is going to, uh, benefit cardiorespiratory fitness more, but you're still going to get some improvement in muscle strength, some improvement in muscular hypertrophy. And similarly from the strength training, you're going to get some improvement in cardiorespiratory fitness. Um, as far as which one's going to have a bigger effect on health outcomes for twins, all starting with the same level of each, I don't know, and I can't really answer that question. Um, I think it just comes down to why, why, or when you can and, and, yeah. you, should, and <laughs> yeah. you should, you should, you should do both. Um, I think that like a lot of people, if 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 I looked at it from a couple different angles, one is like which one is gonna suck more to have very, very, very little of. My bias would be strength because of how much that impacts physical independence, mobility, being able to do things. And then, so that's at the low end, like what will you feel the consequences of more at very, very low ends? Um, which will you feel the benefits of at very, very, very high ends is, is, is tougher to say, but I also wanted to throw in the caveat that like what um, I remain very skeptical of um, some of the uh, evidence that gets cited with respect to like um, J-shaped relationships or things like that. Basically like we, I think both remain you know, more convinced by evidence of like a, again, nonlinear, like the more you do, it's not like a just ongoing linear benefit forever, but that like we, you know, very, very, very high levels of cardiorespiratory adaptation confer ongoing benefits in terms of reducing risk of death and things like that. So I think that more in general tends to be better, although it's not again, linear. So, um, that's, that's at the high end of the scale. Yeah. I, I, I don't think that that similar relationship exists with strength though. It's like, well, let's say once you got to like I don't know, one and a half times body weight squat. You've, you've probably at that point maxed out on benefits from being strong from like a health perspective, performance perspective, obviously you could keep going up and up and up depending on sure. yeah. what, what type of performance you're, you're looking at, what sport you're looking at. But you, since you don't see that with conditioning, you'd kind of see that continued trend. I don't know. You can make an argument for conditioning. It'd be weak, but yeah, <laughs> you could it make an argument. Depends on what end of the scale you're looking at. I think that's an interesting kind of thought. Yeah. Can you imagine being able to squat 600, but not being able to walk across the room because you're so out of breath? Because <laughs> right, that, that happened to me. Like that <laughs> legitimately, like when I was sick in November, I remember I squatted 600, but then like walking across the room, I was out of breath. Not because I wasn't doing conditioning work. I was just sick and like not straight up not having a good time. And at that point I would have given uh, either significant amount of money or potentially even some anatomy just to have <laughs> a normal level of cardiovascular fitness. But again, why or when you can and. Okay, drum roll. Potpourri section. Again, I'm here with Dr. Austin Baraki. All right, first off, do we have any plans to bring a barbell medicine seminar to St. Louis, Missouri? And so we were there in 18. And uh, if you were there, hey, thanks for showing up. That was I'm from St. Louis. I would love to go back to St. Louis. Um, not, none of my family really still lives there. Like my immediate family is all, all out here, but I've got friends there. I've got some, uh, 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 cousins and, and whatnot. It would be cool to hang out with, but also like the food, 
I took Austin. If you're from St. Louis, you know about Pappies and Bogarts. I took Austin to both of those places. I took him to Emo's. I took him to Ted Drew's. We did the whole thing. Now, Austin, you don't, you can hurt my feelings here. It's fine. What did you think about the pizza? I was down with it. That's fine by yeah. me. If you don't know what St. Louis style pizza is, it's the square beyond compare. It's very thin, uh, like cracker type crust with provolone cheese, which is provolone, Swiss and mozzarella. It's got some caraway seeds on there, a little tangy sauce, very thin. And honestly, I mean, for me, I just have so much sentimental value there that I love it. Yeah, yeah. But I, I can understand when people come to St. Louis and they have it, they go, this isn't pizza. This is like, it's like, like flatbread. I get it. But, uh, yeah, so I'd love to come back to St. Louis. We were actually talking about coming there in 2023 to, uh, the new lab gym with, uh, Chris Thacker heading that up. I don't know if it's going to happen in 23, but maybe 24, we will be somewhere in the Midwest in 23. Our current seminars that we have scheduled one in LA in November of 22 and one in, uh, Brooklyn, New York in uh, spring of 20 in May of 23. And I think we'll be going to Atlanta. I think we're going to Seattle, and I don't know. I we'll, we'll either go somewhere, maybe in Texas, but who, who knows? Maybe St. Louis, maybe Chicago. We'll see. Yeah. Okay. Baraki, how young is too young to start creatine? Now I'll get into some of this data because I, I read it and you know I'm familiar with it or whatever. But let's just say that you were working in a primary care clinic for whatever reason, and one of your patients was like, you know, I know that you're Austin Barbell Medicine, and I've seen your eyes explode out of your head when you squat, and I presumably you take creatine, and you know, little Jimmy. Uh, he, he, you know, he, he's asking me about creatine. What do you, what do you think? What's your, what's your response there? Just first is just asking the question of like, why, what's, where's this coming from that you want him to supplement? But if the question is like, what do I think about this? I mean, I, I don't know that we have seen signal of harm from creatine, assuming it's actually creatine, like you're not a tainted, tainted supplement or something like that. I am not aware of a significant signal of harm directly induced by creatine in humans uh, in like supplementation trials. Um, and so I would not be like terrified by that thought. I'd just be curious, like why we think this is necessary for the kid. But if, you know, if they want to do it, you know, I am not a pediatrician. I would never be in a position to make recommendations for a kid, but sounds like probably okay to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, we, there's, t- I tried to figure out how many studies that we had on creatine, like safety and efficacy like just to get a number and I can't, there's just, there's just so many, uh, most of these uh, admittedly are in adults or adolescents, but as far as like uh, children, uh, people under the age of, of, you know, 13, 14, we just don't really have a lot of data outside of like medical therapy. And so there are a number of studies where creatine supplementation is used as part of medical therapy. Uh, most common application for creatine in the clinical pediatric population is for children born with creatine deficiency syndrome, where they basically have a reduced or absent ability to make phosphocreatine in the brain and muscle and have, they're very weak, uh, very lethargic, uh, cognitive issues, et cetera. Um, and so they give them creatine. Um, same, they've done this also in Duchenne's muscular dystrophy and also lupus. And again, this seems to be well tolerated. But again, those are like, medical uh, uh, conditions where the administration of creatine and the sourcing of the creatine is like very well controlled, not just like going down to GNC, seeing Vinny, and he gives you creatine that happens to have a little, you know, dose of oxandrolone in there, which that would be my main concern is the tainting of the supplement. So I'll just start out with this is like, there's not a lot of data on safety in youth populations that like either aren't adolescents or uh, um, older uh, adults. And so my main concern is like, where are you getting the creatine from? It should be from a manufacturer that uh, is uh, CGMP uh, credited. So they uh, follow good manufacturing processes. That's usually on the label, a CGMP sort of uh, uh, visualized 
uh, graphic on the label, and then also submits to third-party testing, which can be done through the U.S. Pharmacopeia, can be done through informed consent or informed sport, that's what we use, can be done through NSF. There's a number of other um, organizations that do this sort of batch testing to make sure that you know, what you say is on the label is in there and nothing else. So again, no like contamination with stuff that you wouldn't want little Timmy uh, to get. Um, Interestingly, there's a recent classification of creatine uh, as generally recognized as safe. And this happened in 2020. So basically this just says that based on the currently available scientific data, creatine is safe and has been agreed upon to be safe by a consensus of qualified experts. Now, we would prefer to have a bunch of studies on, you know, kids aged, you know, under 13 or 14 that where they, uh, creatine was well tolerated. But I think I agree with your initial assessment. We haven't seen a signal that creatine in and of itself is dangerous. We've seen some case reports of people taking tainted supplements and that causing problems. But if the actual source of the creatine is, uh, you know, appropriate uh, and, and well controlled, then I am pretty much fine with it. Which brings me to my last point. If Jimmy or Timmy or whoever, whatever the name was, if he's not training, right, what's the point here? You're not going to give them the creatine just to go like smash the T-ball, right? So if the, and I don't mean that they need to be on like a very rigid program or whatever. We've got this uh, youth training article series that Dr. Derek Miles published on our website. But if they're not like formally exercising on a regular basis, meeting the physical activity guidelines, which for them is three times per week of resistance training at a minimum, again, it doesn't have to be very rigid, uh, whatever. Uh, but if they're not doing that, like the conversation's over. It, we're not just do it, giving these kids creatine and be like, yeah, well, it's better than not taking it, you know, unless, again, they have these medical conditions and are otherwise being monitored by a, a medical professional. Um, so that's kind of my take on creatine in kids. I don't think it's going to make or break anybody's athletic career, but at the same time, like, if you're not lifting, I don't know that you need to be taking creatine outside of, like, treating one of these medical conditions we know that responds to creatine supplementation. Okay. All right. Next question. We're getting close to the end here. Uh, any advice for choosing a template after the beginner template has been completed? So, Baraki, I know that you check all of your DMs. Your unread folder is probably zero because you just get <laughs> back to everybody. But this is a common question I get. So, if you get this question, what's your like? What's your analysis and what's your sort of go go to recommendation? Well, the first thing that's worth mentioning is that this is discussed in the associated text that comes with the template. There's a, there's a whole section that covers like, uh, how do I approach this question? What do I do next based on my goals? And so that is the question itself. What are your particular goals? Do you have well-defined goals? Um, meaning that are you more focused on strength? If you are focused on strength, in what ways, like, what do you want to be strong at? Do you want to be strong at, you know, barbell related things? Okay. If barbells, is it more weightlifting focused? Is it more powerlifting focused? Um, you know, movements, or is it none of those and some other movement? Um, if it is not barbell focused, what else do you want to be strong at? Um, if it is more muscle mass, muscle hypertrophy, you know, just want to get jacked and you don't care about like one rep max performance in a particular exercise. Okay. That will take you in a different direction. Is it CrossFit style? Is it aerobic? Is it conditioning related? Like that is the, that is the way that you choose your path is you, you kind of need to come to a decision of like, what is your goal? And if none of these things you're like, I just want to be healthy and do general strength and conditioning, then, you know, there you go. You, (laughs) you, you have a path laid out ahead of you. 
and and again like the more experienced you get in this path you will feel you should feel hopefully more comfortable more empowered um have being able to look back on your training history and saying what did i enjoy what did i not enjoy what did i respond well to what did i not respond well to and being able to tweak the things for yourself like they're not written in stone like you can do you can do these things particularly the more experienced you get um, to tweak things to your preferences and make things as sustainable and enjoyable and like as consistent with your goals as they can be. So I think that's really the best advice for like the next step is figuring out what you want to do. And if nothing, then there's an option for you that way too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In fact, when we were building the algorithm for like the template picker, the idea was people would answer a series of questions that would sort of stratify the, their priorities based on, all right, is strength my number one priority in, in the big three? Uh, is hypertrophy my number one priority? Is conditioning my number one priority? Okay, cool. What's my number two priority? And that just kind of leads people down this path to like, this is probably the most appropriate template. Here are some other templates you may find interesting based on your responses here. And so if you have an iPhone, you can get the Marble Medicine app. You can, you know, take that algorithmized version of my brain and pick a template. Um, but yeah, I, same thing is like, what do you want to do? What are your priorities? And then how, what, what sort of training resources do you have available to you? So somebody is like, hypertrophy, number one, that's it. Let me do it. And I'm like, well, the bodybuilding thing might be most appropriate, but if you're training in a home gym and you have like no access to any machines and we're really going to have to like work on, on some variations, then maybe the hypertrophy template is a better fit just based on how that's set up. But again, as you said at the beginning of this, this is all discussed in the beginner template PDF that comes with the template. Uh, and so you know, just to circle back and really put a bow on this. If you're wondering where would we recommend you start your resistance training journey at, if you're new to this or someone you know is new to this and they want to start training, the beginner template would be where we'd have folks uh, start. And we have a free version of that on the website. It's uh, called the beginner prescription with a bunch of supportive materials there. And so you could start there, go to the beginner template and then pick your own adventure. It's like one of those books, right? You just like pull out the little tab and it says, uh, it'd be funny if there was like a strength one, like who, who pops out there? You know, just you, just eyes popping out of your head. And then, <laughs> I don't know. All right. A couple questions left here on uh, podcast episode 188 with Dr. Austin Baraki. Hey, you know, this question was funny and I put it in here just to annoy you because I laughed when I read it and I thought you wouldn't. Um, the question is Dr. Baraki and golf. And that's the question, which I think is, (laughs) you've never played golf. Uh, no, not seriously. Um, Putt-putt, been on a golf course with some friends for like a golf tournament that we kind of screwed around with, but no, not played seriously. And at the moment, neither the interest nor the resources to dedicate towards that. I think I mentioned like, if I'm going to dive into something, well, I guess I made that's a pun there, but yeah, I'm going to be yeah. back in the pool before I get on the golf course. You know, what's funny is that you you'd previously had some elbow pain off and on, uh, for, for a while. And I think one way to really really treat that (laughs) would be to start playing lots and lots of golf (laughs) lots and lots of golf all right so maybe we can't get you on the golf course but this follow-up question is probably more applicable to our non-golfing friends um i've i got bit by the golf bug i love golf i'm I'm golfing multiple times per week trying to get better uh so i can enter some competitive tournaments and also like for me it's a way to unplug from business you know because barbell medicine that's that's like my life and then when i train it's still kind of like work almost in a way. I, I love training, but it's still like, oh, this is for kind of kind of the job. Whereas golf is like unrelated. Same thing with motocross. So people are like, seems like you spend a lot of time playing golf and riding dirt bikes. I'm like, well, you see that a lot, but that's really me unplugging. Anyway, people, uh, people are asking, 
Is there any golf-specific training that you do or would you recommend to maximize golf performance? And so I feel like I can answer this one and then I'd like your take on it just from like if you had a client that wanted to start golfing or was golfing and was like, how do I hit the ball further or whatever? And then maybe we could talk about swimming. Uh, so for me personally, I do no golf-specific training like in the gym. And that's how, where I'm like drawing the line. If you're asking me, do I go out and practice, you know, go to the range, um, or, uh, uh, if I'm playing like a practice round or round that I don't really, you know, I'm not really keeping a, a score that's going to go towards my handicap. If I, you know, practice certain situations, yes, I do all of that, but that's more like sports specific practice. And I do that in the field. Well, in this case on the course, but in the gym, no, I don't do anything. And it, as far as what I would recommend for folks, it is probably not to do golf specific training. And the reason is most people are not meeting the current physical activity guidelines, period. Right. And so like, first and foremost, you got to do that. And if you're uh, uh, not well-trained already, meaning that you have not been meeting the physical activity guidelines in a progressively loaded fashion for, you know, at least six months, we'll say the golf specific training is going to have minimal, if any, uh, effect on your actual golf game because you're not far enough down the, the the river for it to really help you. Um, and if anything, you'd be unprepared for that specific type of training and it may increase risk of injury, burnout, stuff like that. And I just not really willing to tackle that. I will say that if I had got, you know, a college golfer, for example, um, and they previously, again, had not been lifting weights at all. They're just like, I just play golf, dude. I mean, look at these tan lines. I've been golfing. I'm like, great. So I'd put them on something that looks like the beginner template let them kind of develop this broad base of physical adaptations they've previously been leaving like undeveloped. And that includes conditioning because you got to walk around a golf course. Every time I carry my bag around a golf course, it's somewhere between 15 and 20 plus thousand steps. You don't think there's a conditioning component to golf, particularly competitive golf. You know, people think about beer league, you're in a, a golf cart. But one interesting study that I, I recently read was that people who take a golf cart on average take between 6,000 and 8,000 steps during a round even if you're taking a golf cart and it's like, you know, look, if your conditioning is not very good, like I don't, that may represent a significant sort of level of fatigue. But, um, so yeah, for the college golfer, I'd have them start on something like the beginner template, have them run through that, build this broad base of physical development. And then, yeah, later on we can do some, uh, particular exercises and exercise modes that would likely transfer over better to golf. That would be specifically uh, improving high velocity force production, some rotational work, um, particularly in opposition to the no way they normally swing. Um, but when you look at like golf fitness stuff, I mean, it's just so specialized, which I guess shouldn't be surprising. That looks like all sports stuff. It's like they just replicate the sport. And I'm like, they're doing the practice stuff already. You don't need to replicate the sport. It doesn't mean it, it, it doesn't have to be dichotomized to use the phrase that you uh, used earlier. It, like it doesn't have to be all or none. You can do a little bit, but you don't have, to, it doesn't have to be all you do. Um, so in any case I would have, yeah, some high velocity work it doesn't have to be Olympic lifts. It could be trap bar deadlift jumps. It could be squat jumps. It could be some plyometrics really depends on the person, what they want to do, what their previous level of training is, current training tolerances. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I would have them do some rotation work, um, both in the direction they swing a golf club and the opposite direction. Um, and otherwise I'd just keep improving their strength in a way that does not interfere with their ability to practice their sport. So does a golfer need to do heavy singles? I don't think so. I don't think they need to do a single at eight. They may do singles at like 40 or 50% of their one RM where they're trying to move things as fast as possible, you know, that high velocity force production. But otherwise, yeah, there's going to be some elements of low velocity, maximal strength development, 
there's going to be some more hypertrophy focused stuff and there's going to be some high velocity uh, focused stuff. And that's kind of like a general template for athletic development. And as far as where, how you prioritize the training time towards each of those things, plus conditioning is going to be dependent on the sports demands itself. Right. So, um, you know, this question to you, Baraki is like, is any, uh, swimming specific stuff you're doing in the gym, you know, to yeah. get your, your, your stroke back or what's up? Yeah. Most, uh, no, but most swimmers I think are similarly like uh, kind of undertrained from a, uh, from a strength standpoint. Um, they swimming culture does tend to have a fair amount of outside of the pool activities, but they tend to effectively all be body weight, uh, type things like planks and leg raises and, and, and things like that are like common examples of things that are done outside the pool with swimmers. So I agree. I, I like the idea of building like this kind of broad base of physical development, as, as we've said in the, in the gym, the exercise selection, even for a beginner who's like getting into this, I am not going to be picky with, um, while building this broad base. Like for example, if, if, uh, you know, I would, for a swimmer, I would probably want to prioritize some shoulder development in particular, some back strength, lat strength, leg strength. Um, I care less, for example, about how much a swimmer can bench press. It doesn't really matter that much to me if they wanted to do that for the purposes of this, you know, general physical development. Cool. Uh, but that's not necessarily going to be where ultimately like my emphasis in the gym is going to be. So probably a fair amount of shoulder overhead work, um, like lat pull down cable row kind of stuff for back development. Um, plenty of both, but you know, I, I would have them do some squatting, uh, bilateral, have some unilateral leg work, uh, as well. Uh, and then, yeah, I care less about the bench, even the deadlift. I mean, it's like if, if they really didn't want to do that, I'm like, I care. I, I find that, um, I can probably get the main things that I want developed in, in other ways, if that's something that they didn't want to do. Um, or if they wanted to, that's fine too. Uh, but like you said, I definitely agree. Like, do they need to do singles ever? Uh, pretty much no. Um, I would have them doing primarily rep work. I would probably not be, there's no reason for them to be hitting RPE nines in, in, in training either. I don't think, or, or tens, we could keep them further away, not smoke them in the gym, leave some of that fatigue for other uses, other applications, use it for some plyo work, use it for the pool, whatever the case is. Um, and that'd be kind of like my general thought process as far as strength training a swimmer goes. Yeah. You know, uh, the, the rumor is that Tiger Woods bench 315 in college. I believe it. Yeah. And, uh, there, I know there's a study associating chest press strength and club head speed. Although yeah. when you look, go down the rabbit hole of like what increases club head speed, it's like pretty much everything. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Being more like, jacked than strong in general. <laughs> yeah. Like being well-trained. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Next question. What is your current reading list? I know you just, uh, you finished McCraney's book, right? I finished, uh, David McCraney's how minds change, uh, posted about it twice and strongly recommended it to people twice. So hopefully that recommendation is clear. And then I also finished a much shorter read Christopher Hitchens book mortality, uh, which was his like memoirs at the time when he was actively dying from esophageal cancer, which was uh, heavy, but yeah, worth the read. Okay. I'll have to pick that one up, uh, for a real, real pick me up, I guess. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) uh, so I finished, I think the last podcast when somebody asked about what what we were reading, I finished Steve Magnus's book, do hard things. Mm-hmm. Um, he was the uh, Nike performance lab coach, uh, for, for a while. He also, uh, wrote, uh, the science of running. I like his stuff. That book do hard things is really interesting and like, and has a lot of tie ties into like load selection and exercise session, like, uh, performance. And so I would recommend, uh, I don't know if I'm 10 out of 10 cause I feel like I need a more granular scale, maybe like 
nine out of 10. <laughs> uh, and then I just finished uh, more recently, Nasty, Brutish, and Short by Scott Hers- uh, Hershevitz. Dude, 10 out of Perfect. 11 out of 10 would would recommend. And I do not like philosophy that much. I'm not interested in these like, you know, can you, you know, can you separate the mind and the body? Like I get it. Like somebody smarter than me needs to discuss. I just, I lose interest because it moves past my brain computing power too quickly. And I'm just like, yeah. I don't know what to think. Yeah. Uh, this book was great. There's a lot of like times where he asks his kids a question, like, can you go to the edge of the universe? And uh, what happens if you, if you were to punch the edge of the universe and the kid's like, well, if you hit something, that means it's not the edge. <laughs> and you're like, whoa. Anyway, so that's more my level. Uh, but the he does a, a really nice job at unpacking a lot of like very complex uh, philosophical sort of theories and, and ways to think about stuff. So uh, would recommend that. And my current book that I'm reading right now is Don't Trust Your Gut, um, which is by Seth Stevens uh, Davidowitz. Uh, it's a big data science sort of book where he's unpacking all sorts of things from athletic performance to dating, et cetera. Interesting stuff. Again, still on the nonfiction tip, like anyone's surprised. So well, you know what we should do is we should start like an Amazon list where we could just like link books. Like maybe we could, instead of like getting sponsors, like imagine, you know, episode 189 brought to you by Rogue. Like instead of that, we just like go to our Amazon banner and like buy these books. Yeah, I don't know. It seems It seems like... I don't know that I want to like <laughs> context of interest here. We'll see. All right. Last question. And this is my favorite question. Uh, Austin, when are we going to start a dedicated Instagram account for cars and lifestyle? People want <laughs> the influencer content. When, when do you think we're doing that? Uh, I think that'd be very, very one-sided. Uh, I'm not about <laughs> that life <laughs> myself. I, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously we just I have post, different hobbies. <laughs> we do have different hobbies, different interests, et cetera. Uh, but, you know, and I post about them, I would consider relatively infrequently. Like there's never been, for example, a post on my Instagram, like the feed where it's like, these are me and my cars. Check this out. Or like, yeah. you know, yeah. this is me at a restaurant. I don't know. It's on my story mostly. And I just feel like people like this sort of parasocial relationship where they're like following along. But yeah. man, I get some heat. In the YouTube comments, on the Reddit, whatever, where people are like, I can't believe Feigenbaum is doing all this. Is, you know, it, it, it's not for the common, you know, middle middle class person. And I'm like, and I, I get that. Like, you, maybe you don't want to see that or, or whatever. And people are like, I'm here for the fitness information, the medical information. And, you know, I get that. But at the same time, like, I don't care how other people spend their money at all. Like, it does not bother me, affect me influence my like opinion of them at all and, and and further like i feel like you and i both work really really hard like if you decided to go buy a luxury vehicle i wouldn't be like baraki this is off brand yeah, for you right. I'd be like, <laughs> right, awesome right, dude right. let's talk yeah. about it yeah i don't right, know right. man it's like it's just strange so in any case we're probably never doing that just because I, I if i'm honest i probably feel a little too self-conscious about it i mean yeah you know I know where I, I started. Rather, from. I would rather I'd rather shut it all down than do that. So yeah, I would rather start a, an Instagram account called like the Angry Coach and just be like very, very you know angry and and post stuff like that, which would not be healthy for anybody. Than post stuff like this. I just feel really uncomfortable doing it. And that and that's yeah. even starting where I, where I, where I came from. So look, man, we answered questions from the internet. We did it. But in any case, thank you guys for tuning in to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. Big shout out to Dr. Baraki for suffering through all of 
my questions, hypotheticals, etc. cetera. Uh, before you guys go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. We'll catch you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. See you.